Hey everybody, this is Pastor Chad, and today we are going to hear uh, a testimony from Alex Wright. And I get a lot of requests to hear more and more testimonies. The reason I like them is because they give us a uh, real-world example and application of the power of the gospel, how the Lord changes lives and what it means to truly uh, abide in him and to serve him and to walk in him and the things how powerful uh, his gospel is to set us free from the sin that we're trapped in so welcome to the show alex and i'm just going to let you uh run with it i'll probably interrupt you with some questions as we move forward but i'm excited to uh to hear your testimony and see how the lord has transformed you yeah thanks for inviting me to the show pastor chad i really appreciate the opportunity to share my testimony share what Jesus Christ has done in my life and taken me out of severe drug addiction and depression and um, just drawn me to him, uh, drawn me to him and, and given me a, a new life and a new heart. So Praise I'll just Lord. get right into it. I'll, um, I'll share a little bit about my upbringing and kind of how I led, got led down that path. Okay. Um, so I grew up in a Christian home. And it was kind of like, it was Christian, so to say. So, you know, my parents talked about God and Jesus, but they were drinking and smoking. And and it was kind of all confusing for me. And it, I didn't really have a sense of who the Lord was. There was no fear of the Lord in my house, that's for sure. Um, so I remember at a young age seeing my father drunk and wasted and just messed up. And it, it really kind of threw me off because... I would go to high school and I would I would or I would go to school and I would see other kids with families that didn't have to deal with this and wonder kind of what's wrong with my family why is why is my family like this like uh, why 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 am I going through this so you know that kind of set the stage for my upbringing mm-hmm. but my fam my family was involved in uh, assemblies of God church so they went to assemblies of God church and. I remember at the age of seven um, going to one of the services and and they're like, you know, raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus into your heart. And and I remember going up there and accepting Jesus and and going, yay, you know, I'm a Christian now. And um, that went on from seven to, to age 12 to age 13, being baptized at 14, all these decisions that I made to accept Christ into my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were just, you know, I thought I was Christian during those times, but that's not what being a Christian is all about. It's not just raising your hand and saying you believe. It's so much more than that. It's a it's a lifetime of sacrifice. It's trials, tribulations. It's it's going through the fire and being sanctified um, in the Lord and growing through holiness to become more like Christ. So, mm-hmm. you know, during that time. Um, <clears throat> You know, it was pretty, I, I didn't really know what to think. I just know what I was being taught and what I had to do to be a believer. Um, but so basically my dad was, like I said, growing up, he was really, he was a drinker and stuff. So I started going to a youth group uh, around the age of high school and started getting involved with the youth group at a different church. And I remember in that youth group, the pastor there would do these sermons and and these messages he he would talk about god and jesus he really wouldn't touch on the holy spirit no really strong doctrinal stuff or anything like that 
and he would do a lot of messages that were like involving uh, TV shows, like whatever was on, uh, you know, popular, The Simpsons or like uh, football games or the show Twenty Four. I remember these messages mixed in with our culture and, and making everything kind of fun and entertaining. Mm-hmm. But I don't really remember learning anything. Um, I remember actually gossiping with the with the pastor at the time about people in the church people around the church he, he wasn't really a good example but um you know that's kind of what happened with the with the youth group and growing up like that and, and at that time you know i had made this decision uh, and even gotten baptized thinking i was a believer deceiving myself um into thinking i was a believer but it, it was just i was still gambling i was still swearing you know, I, I had no change in my heart. I, I loved my sin. You know, I loved every part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what happened was, is like, you know, I just remember looking back now, is like, there's no emphasis on church history, no emphasis on the reformers, martyrs, you know, what, what people have done in the faith throughout the years. It was just all like worldly. He even, on top of it, he had... Um, <laughs> He had mentioned a guy, this guy Rob Bell, who's completely heretical. You know, he <laughs> wow. doesn't even believe in hell. Yeah, he's a train wreck. Show us his video. Well, oh, go ahead. What? I said, yeah, Rob Bell's a train wreck. <clears throat> yeah, he's a he's a train wreck. But when you're 14, 15 year old, you're watching these sensual, cool little videos he would do, um, and you're like, yeah, man, that's the Jesus I want. Oh yeah, he gets it, and he would show us these. I mean, like this is a youth group of like 30 or 40 kids that he's supposed to shepherd. He's supposed to pastor, and he's showing us this just garbage, you know. Mm-hmm. And it would just really, you know, we I was I was getting nothing out of it except for a place to have friends, you know, a, a kind of a mentor figure, you know, girl is seeing girls around and stuff like that. But there was no, I I didn't know anything about the Bible at all except for what we read during the lessons and stuff. But I, I didn't understand any of it. Um, and I was so deceived, you know, that I thought I was a believer. Um, so fast forward to like about 17, when I was 17 years old, I made a, my dad, me and my dad weren't getting along very well. You know, he, he was drinking and, and he was a very angry guy and we would get in a lot of yelling matches and fights and stuff like that. So I applied for college. I got into East Carolina or um, East Eastern Kentucky University, Moody Bible Institute, uh, University of Arizona, and University of Illinois in Chicago. And instead of going down the path that I think God had, God was leading me down to do ministry and and, and gave me some gifts to, um, you know, spread the gospel there, I decided to go to Arizona and I just wanted to get as far away from my parents, that environment of where I grew up. Um, sorry, I grew up outside of Chicago, so I just wanted to get far out of that environment and I wanted to get you know far away and, and get away from all of it so I went down to University of Arizona um, I started getting into smoking weed and, and um, selling weed uh, not really focusing on classes not very doing very well doing a lot of partying and things like that and Basically, the second year of school, um, the roommate I was living with, he started doing this drug called Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. And so he was snorting it and, and um, smoking it, and he introduced me to it. Um, 
and I fell in love with it. I just, it made me feel good. I was depressed at the time. It, 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 made, it kept me going. And I got a really bad addiction. I was uh, snorting almost 180 milligrams of Oxycontin like every other day, um, just physically addicted to opiates at that point. And at that time, from what I can remember, you know, I, I still thought I was Christian. You know, I thought I was a good person and, and, and I had made that decision, but I don't know. And maybe it had something to do with me making myself feel better about the situation I was in. But I couldn't be further from the truth. You know, if I if I were to die during that time, I would have been in hell with everyone else who doesn't believe in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got this oxycodone addiction, and basically, I just had to quit cold turkey. So I quit cold turkey. I stopped doing it I, I left Arizona I didn't even graduate I just I just went back home to outside of Chicago where I'm from and and I just basically my depression started to get worse and, and um, even though I was sober at the time you know I, off the opiates I was still smoking weed I was still you know fornicating with women I was partying I basically brought everything up uh, from Arizona back with me to Chicago and I just kept uh, doing the same things I was doing so um, then I started selling weed to an undercover cop in Naperville or a, a, narc, a narcotics an informant basically I didn't know at the time but I started selling drugs to him and um, you know one night he kept asking for more weed and, and I thought it was a little suspicious because I didn't know him very well and so one night I got him a lot and and I met him uh, not that far from where I lived, and I basically pulled up to uh, his car, and and he's like, "You got it." I, I pulled it out. He went to go wait, and then like the Naperville SWAT team pulled up, like four or five cars swarmed me and get out of the crowd, swearing at me, shotguns on my face, the whole ordeal, you know. And, and the guy's acting like he had no involvement. He's just like, "Oh, what are you doing to me?" Blah blah blah. But, you know, he was in on the whole thing and, and they arrested me and I went to I went to jail and and they wanted me to inform on other people and uh, some other criminal activity. But I just I just went to jail and I ended up getting probation. And so I got probation for two years while this time just getting deeper into drugs. Um, I couldn't smoke weed because I was being drug tested, but I started um, taking actually a, a year to the day after I quit Oxycontin. I, I relapsed on Oxycontin, and then uh, the guy that gave me that was going to the methadone clinic because he used to do heroin, mm-hmm. and he started giving me methadone. So I started taking methadone from him that he would get from the clinic. So I was doing that for a couple of years while I was on probation, um, just getting deeper and darker into sin in the world. You know, I just felt so empty in my life at that time. I had. I just felt so dark, so away from God. I, I, I remember this moment when I was trying, I was on drugs, but I was trying to connect to God or whatever form I knew of him. And I, I just couldn't feel anything. I just felt so gone, so dark and just so empty. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, to this day, I think that's what hell, maybe a little glimpse of what hell might feel like. Just, just disconnected from the Lord. Uh, completely separated from him like you're no you're he's there but you have no love uh there's no love connection between you and the father mm-hmm. and, and 
I just remember that moment and it's just like it, man it's just so hard to go through um but so anyways I I basically I had to get a job for probation I started working at the warehouse you know still doing the methadone and at that time I started taking this drug called Suboxone which is to get people off heroin and it's mm-hmm. a different drug and just the cycle continued um I I, I remember this moment this is probably the closest. I, I probably overdosed 15 to 20 times. I never went to a hospital because I was on probation. I was very paranoid. I thought I would get, you know, go to jail and all that. So um, I remember this one time I went to go see that guy uh, to get methadone, and he gave me twice of what I was taking. And you know, I was high for maybe about five minutes, and then I started not feeling good and overdosing. I still went to work. I threw up so many boxes at the warehouse I got super sick um, that night I went home I smoked some of this fake weed this spice my heartbeat was like 250 beats a minute I it was the one time in my life I thought I was gonna die and, and even though I was an unbeliever at the time God's hand was still over me because I, I grabbed my Bible that I hadn't picked up in years I held on to it for dear life and I said God you have to save me tonight like I'm not gonna make it wow. and yeah so you know I, I I grabbed my Bible for dear life I, I said God you had to save me I woke up the next morning I uh, peed my pants and, and I got through the night and I was still alive but the point was that no, nothing ever changed you know I, I looked to <clears throat> I looked to the scriptures and I looked to Mark chapter 7 verses 20 through 23 and it says, And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Mm -hmm. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And that's who I was at the time. You know, I was wicked. I was terrible. Um, I did everything which, as believers in Christ, God calls us not to do. Um, I was a gambler. I was a fornicator. I, I was I was the biggest liar. That was the one thing I did all the time as a drug addict. I just lied. I lied about who I owed money and when. I lied and said I, I had this when I didn't have that. I lied to my family. I lied to my friends. You know, I stole from my family. I... I stole so many things from everyone and, and just to fill, fulfill my fix. You know, at that point, I was so physically addicted. It was the only thing that I was living for. And I remember after I got sober and got clean, my friend said to me, he said, you know, Alex, I was going to, I thought I was going to read about you in the paper. You were either going to be dead or in prison or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't even know how you got out of this. But, <laughs> The only way I got out of it was by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, by the grace of our Lord, because I should have, I I was head for, there were things that I had done. I had, you know, I had guns to my head. I had been robbed. I remember when I was in going to school in Arizona that there was a guy we used to get weed from who was like higher up than us. And, and one day he's smoking blunt with us at, at night the next morning he's dead he got shot to death wow. and I mean 
I remember telling my parents that, and they were like, Alex, do you think there's something wrong with this? Like, these are the people you're hanging out with. Like, this guy's dead. He got, and I act, I talked, I told them about it like it was no big deal. But this was the world I was living in. Yeah. Um, I can totally relate, believe me. (laughs) Yeah. These are the characters that I was associated with. And many of them, some have, you know, God bless it. Some of them have got sober, but a lot of them are gone, you know, and they're just, they're dead or they're in prison. And that one guy who got killed, the other guys in prison, we used to hang out with him too. And yeah, it was just, it was just crazy. But, um, so yeah, moving on basically. So after that night, you know, my drug, my drug addiction just got so bad and, and I was starting to act crazy. Um, and, and I was just like, so I was, I was gambling, I was losing money. I was doing so many drugs. My family was worried about me. Uh, I started skipping some probation meetings. I think this is on the tail end of my probation. I started skipping some probation meetings. I failed dirty a couple times in drug tests. And so I, I, my parents are like, you need to go to rehab. You need to get help. And, and what happened was, or sorry, let me back, let me backtrack. Um, I was at my house and I don't know what I did or what drug I was on, but I, I just I was so depressed and I was so messed up. I think I was going through some mini withdrawals, but my brother was really concerned for me and he was like he called my parents, my parents were out of town, he's like, Something's wrong with Alex and he, he's not leaving the room, he's he's not doing he doesn't look good, he's going crazy when I try to talk to him. So my parents were like, Look, you, you need to go to rehab or you can't stay in this house anymore. So I ended up going outpatient rehab to start. I kind of did everything backwards, which is weird. Usually you would go detox and inpatient, then outpatient. But I went outpatient, then inpa- or then detox, then inpatient. So it was like a little backwards of what I did. But I, this whole rehab scene to me was all new. I, I didn't know what was going on. I, I thought they were going to just cure me, and I was just going to have no drug. I was just going to be drug-free. I had no concept of what it was all about, but... So I ended up going outpatient rehab, but you know, I, I still got to go home and I was still doing drugs and just didn't really care. And then finally my parents like, you need to go somewhere like inpatient. So I went to an inpatient rehab and that was quite an experience. It was like a kind of a country clubish feel like all these people, you know, I'm kind of, I grew up upper middle class, but a lot of these people were very wealthy and they're in there and some of these people have been in there like seven eight times yeah you know, yep. you know over and over again and there are a lot of old timers there and stuff like that and, and 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 i kept thinking to myself like man i'm not as messed up as these people like these people some of them have cirrhosis like they've lost their family it's like i was 24 at the time or no no sorry let me back up i was 23 at the time when i was in rehab and i just thought I don't know. I I just didn't. I didn't think I was that bad or I was that far gone. But so when I went to rehab, that was an experience in itself. Uh, one, they try to dual diagnose you, so they're trying to diagnose you with mental illness while on top of it treating your drug addiction. And so you're sitting there in a room and you're with a psychiatrist who's telling you, "Well, do you hear voices?" Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm hearing voices, but I'm coming off opiates. That's a common sign of withdrawing off opiates. It's hearing voices, seeing things that aren't there. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, well, you're schizophrenic. So they started 
prescribed me Risperdal, which is like has some levels of methamphetamines in it. It's a really hardcore antipsychotic. And so they started giving me that, which made me even more messed up. And then they're like, well, you have all these mood swings. Do you think you're bipolar? And, and I'm like withdrawing. I'm coming off drugs. I'm like, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I guess my mood changes a lot. Okay, well, we're going to give you, um, I can't remember the name of it, but they gave me um, another drug at the time. And, and that, was, that was making me crazy too. So they ended up, I think by the time I got out of that rehab place, I was on like five or six different medications that I'd never been on in my life. Let me ask, and, let me ask you there, because that, that's the same thing. I went through this, but at like 13 years sober, or maybe 11 years sober. I just, uh, I just sort of went crazy. I was so unhappy. I was so miserable. And it still amazes me how almost flippantly these psychiatrists just threw labels at me because the same thing they said you know it looks like you probably uh, I don't know if they used schizophrenia with me they said I was definitely bipolar manic depressive ADHD um, OCD you know and uh, it's still to this day it amazes me how in such a short interaction they made these decisions and put me on these drugs that were just horrific in the results that in what they did to me. I mean, would you is that what you experienced as well? Yeah, no, that was definitely what I experienced. I mean, the somewhat consciousness I had at the time, I just felt you see this doctor for like five minutes and he's telling you things that he is he is seeing about you. And, and you're like kind of a little messed up and you're just like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I am depressed. Okay, yeah, my mood does change a lot. Yeah, I'm hearing voices. And then, and then they just start labeling you and they're just, they just start putting you on all these different drugs. And yeah. I'm like, I'm trying to come off drugs. Yeah, and I just, I just saw this last week. A, a woman asked me if I'd go see her uh, 19-year-old daughter that's in a local you know rehab place here. And, and I hate going to those places. They're so, yeah. they're so, uh, they're just the opposite of, of, of Christianity. And, and I went in there and I'm literally watching these, you know, so-called counselors with clipboards just go from person to person, spend a couple minutes with them, asking questions. And then they go back to the doctor and you can see the doctor writing scripts. And this, this, this was like for 30 minutes while I was there, they must've done that to like 10 people. It, it's crazy. So anyway, that's that that's a side issue. But I think it's, it's something I wanted to bring up because a lot of people don't realize how uh, the error, I think, that that exists in all this diagnosing of these so-called disorders and, and diseases that they say people have. Yeah, no, I and I yeah, I agree with you. It, it was. Yeah. And I I hate I've been in a couple of those places since spoken, share my testimony and. I hate going in those places too because it's just such a false happiness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just it's so worldly, yep. you know. It it's so worldly, but yeah, it's it's, uh, it's pretty wild. That the one drug that they had me on, um, oh, Seroquel was the other one. That's what they put me on for bipolar. I remember the name now. But the one drug they had me on, Respital. A couple of years, you know, after the fact, when I got out, I was on that drug. And man, that made me feel like I was in another evil world. Like my mind, that was one of the only drugs, that and another one I was on when I was coming out. But that, it was like whatever was in that drug, which I found out later is a little bit of methamphetamine is in the drug or derivative of that. Mm -hmm. That like messes your brain up so much that 
oh man, I just I can still remember the feeling of being on that. It was so it was so bad, and and yeah, they're just they're just pumping people on those things. They're just just giving them to them like crazy, like candy. Yep. Sad. <laughs> yeah, but so I was on. So I was in. That was in. That was in Central DuPage Hospital. That was in the inpatient program and by Chicago, and then. Um, so I was in there and then afterwards, um, I left my house and I, or I left, sorry, I left the rehab facility. I remember going back out to my parents' house. They're like, okay, well you completed the program. We'll let you live. And then, you know, I was just acting crazy, uh, even crazier than before. Cause I was on all these drugs. Like mm-hmm. I, I was, I was paranoid and, and I was thinking the government, something with the government. I remember talking about that and like, I just kept, I remember just kept attacking my family, like, because they had suggested I go in that place, and, and when you're in that place, it's like such a jail-like atmosphere, like, it feels like you, except you can leave, but you can't leave, you feel like, they're like, oh, you can leave at any time, but you're like, it feels like you can't leave, mm-hmm. it's such a weird kind of vibe, but... So I went back home to stay with my parents. And so I was acting crazy again. They're like, you know what? That rehab didn't work. You need to go into another one. And so <laughs> all this time while my probation officer, I'm just not talking to her. Like I haven't, this has been a couple months now and she doesn't know where I am. She's MIA. Like I'm, I'm freaking out about that as well. But so I end up going into an inpatient, like a, a jail kind of inpatient program where they had like alarms on the doors and it was like 20 guys in like a little you know room with like three or four per room for for the dorm for the bed where we sleep and that was a crazy experience as well because a lot of those guys are in there because they're court mandated Mm -hmm. um and and then my probation officer knew that i was in there so she's like you have to complete this program successfully or if you leave you're going to go to jail so at that point i had to finish it and i just remember I remember going in there and I remember sitting down with the lady, the director, quote unquote, of the program. And she just fed me a meal and she's like, oh, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. Being all super nice. And then she's like, okay, well, you know, I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here or not. Like this, I, I'm trying to tell her a little bit, but what, what's going on in my life? I was like, my parents dropped me off here, but I just did a rehab program. And they're like, no, 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 here, just come in here. And then they like kind of walk me into another room. And then another guy meets me and he's like, hey, how's it going? He's like, oh, we got a bed for you tonight. Just just sleep here tonight. We'll talk in the morning. And that was day one. I ended up being in there for almost 20, 28 days. Wow. So, I mean, like, I, I go from day one and then and then I think I'm just going to be there for a couple nights. And, yeah, I end up staying there for a long time. And that place was crazy because one of the guys or some of the counselors there, they had just done these, like, 12 or 14-month degree programs basically like i guess anyone can be an addictions counselor you just have to take classes and do a certification and most of them are former addicts themselves Um, yeah yeah and so so i was talking to them about that but like during that it's just like groups upon groups upon groups upon groups and it just basically breaks you down because you're you have nothing else to talk to you've talked about your whole story you've talked about everything and you're just getting broken down. And I, I remember the one guy there, he would show Everybody Loves Raymond clips every day. And we talk about the dynamic of the family, <laughs> TV family. <laughs> it's just like, 
I don't, I don't, I don't know if you didn't have a lesson for the day or just kept putting that on, but just a really strange vibe. And the only thing they did good there was that they were like, why did, why did the last rehab place, why did Central DuPage Hospital, why did they put you on all these drugs? And so they took me off all the drugs that they put me on, which is about six, five or six. So they're like, yeah, I don't know about this. And so they took me off all of them. So by the time I left there, I was only taking a couple, that crazy drug I mentioned before, Risperdal. And then I was taking like an antidepressant. So, um, but man, that, that place was crazy. I mean, I was, I was in a, a place with people who had, you know, murdered people, killed people, like, you know, court-ordered rehab places. Mo- a lot of those people in there were like heroin addicts, recovering heroin addicts, and I mean, they were they were really bad. Um, but I just remember being like, just crazy, just trapped in that place. And so what happened was, I was like, I, you know, I got to get out of here. Like, I had, I had they had taken off a, a good majority of the drugs that I'd put on been put on before, mm-hmm. and I was like, you know what, I got to get out of here. So. I basically start to figure out that the counselor I had, which was this guy Ignatius, he was a he was his his um, his god was Mother Earth, and he, he he would go to the in the morning and just go by the there was a little uh, like a plant grassy area by the door to get in, and he would just go there and just stand there for like thirty minutes, absorbing the energy of Mother Earth before he came into work. Mm-hmm. It was strange, but. So I basically figured I had to just tell this guy what he wanted to hear in order to get out. And it was it was the most bizarre situation because I'm sitting in his office and he's like hinting to me, like, do you want to get out? Like he, he isn't directly saying it, but he's alluding like you need to tell me what what I, I can put down in these papers and these discharge papers in order to leave. So I'm basically just lying to him. I'm like, I'm better. I feel great. I've understood all the errors of my ways. I understood that you shouldn't be on drugs. And then and then get to the, I have a disease part. Like, I have a disease. I can't control it. Like, it's, it's with me forever. And so I'm just telling him, and he's just typing all this out. And then my parents come by, and he just gives it to them. And he's like, okay, you know, he can be released to you. And so I just left. Yeah, because if you go do something drastic, now it's on your shoulders. <laughs> It's a total. It's a total transfer of liability. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was crazy. So, but then it took a turn for the worse because when I was there and he was like, "You can leave your parents." My parents came and got me, and we're sitting there, and he's like, "My parents are like, well, you know, he he's only been in here for whatever twenty eight days or something. Like maybe he should be in here longer." And then the counselor's like, "Well, there's halfway houses. He could go stay in a halfway house." And I'm like, oh, gosh. And, and then he's, like, talking to them about that. And they're like, yeah, we think that's a good idea. So after I left that rehab, they were like, okay, well, you go in this halfway house for a, for a amount of time, and then you come back home. Uh, we want to see that you can be living on your own and stuff. And, and basically, they go to see these counselors at this halfway house. And, dude, it's just a big business, basically. It, it's not... I don't think there's really those counselors were genuine. They don't want people to get really better. They don't care. Dude, at one point we were doing a group lesson and everyone had to pay the counselor ten dollars in cash, like twenty people, and it was just them talking in a circle. They didn't really say much. Yeah. And 
come to find out, it was. It was a big... They got indicted for fraud, like, years later. This well, whole place I was at. Yeah, when I, when I, you know, first got into ministry up here in Boise, I was, I partnered up with a guy who I thought was a solid Christian guy, and he ran three or four of these houses, and it blew me away after I looked at what was going on, because he's charging these guys. He's got a house that's a, you know, like a three-bedroom, two-bath house, so it's made for a family of four or whatever. He's got, like, 10 guys living in there. They're each paying him around $400 a month, and then he's accepting donations from people you know, on the outside that he's soliciting to support this so-called ministry. I'm like, dude, this, there's no way this is right. <laughs> I mean, these guys are paying $400 for a bunk bed, you know, and there's five of them in a room that, that that's for a kid. And yeah, it was, it was the same thing. It, it was just, I was thinking, how much money is this place bringing in? And they don't care yeah, if people get clean or not, you know? Oh, what'd you say? They don't care if people get clean or not. No, no, not at all. And it was such a scam because I remember they do this whole, like, we don't have a bed thing. You know, we don't have a bed, uh, blah, blah, blah. And they tell my parents, well, like, we, we don't have a bed right now, but we know your son needs this halfway house. Um, and then my dad's like, well, I'll just write you a, a donation for $1,000. And they're like, okay, we got a bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just had a guy relapse, so he's, you know, gone. Yeah, yeah so. Yeah. That experience, that was only, I was only in there for like one week or maybe one or two weeks, but I remember that I was with, there were about eight or ten guys or something in this house, this house that should be condemned in like the west side of Aurora, Illinois, which is like a pretty rough area, and I remember these guys, and man, they're like, dude, they're no joke, one guy was like an ex-mobster, and he was popping like 20 pills of Oxycontin a day. He said before he came here, another guy was like, had killed a man years ago and told me how he killed a man. Like, dude, some of these, and they were, there was, it was scary, man. And I remember being in that place. I remember towards the end of it, I was like, and, and the problem was, was like, I was still on that crazy drug all, So it was really messing my brain up. And I kept telling them, I was like, I need to get off this. And they're like, no, 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 no. The doctor says to stay on it. You have to stay on what the doctor says while you're here. And I'm like, this is bad. Like, I don't feel right. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I just, like, drove. I just started driving north. I just, like, drove for hours. I was like, I'm just going to go. And then somehow I got on the phone with someone there, and they're like, no, 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 you need to come back. We need to talk about this. It was like a weird, dude, the whole time I'm in those places, yeah. it's like a weird psychological mental brain. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that was pretty <laughs> wild. But um, yeah, so I ended up, so I went back and I ended up talking to my parents. I convinced them to let me back in. And, and this whole time I'm on short-term disability from my warehouse job. So I, I go back to work. Um, I'm quote unquote sober. I'm still on those medicines or whatever, but I'm not doing any drugs at the time. Um, but so I went back to work, but you know, nothing was changing. I was still depressed and I was still anxious. And, and now I had some traumatic experience to go along with everything. Like I had been through all those rehabs and, and that, like I could never like just thinking about those things as we talk now they bring up so much emotion and feelings and it, it, it it's like it's so surreal because I'm like man I was actually in those places at one time in my life 
but and you know on top I wanted to say too on those places they're so like you were saying they're unbiblical you know they're not godly they they're just trying to cure a lot of people with spiritual problems with worldly means and then everything's whatever you want to believe in type of thing you know whatever your higher power is whatever god you want to believe in you, we all have a disease which i don't agree with at all you know and we relate on that you know addiction is not a disease that's no. the biggest trick that they've said to everyone to not only make money for the drug doctors the rehab facilities everything um you know the core of it is sin we have sin in our life yep you know yep it's it's not a disease at all and and the fact that they were telling this to so many people for so many years and and you think oh well then i don't have to accept my own um actions i i don't have to take i don't have to take responsibility for my actions i don't have to, have to take responsibility for my consequences and you know when they're telling me this, it's something I'm like, it's such a disease. So I was born with this. Yeah, it lets it lets it lets you off the hook. It, you get rid of your guilt, your self-loathing. You think you do because you think, well, if I have a disease, I, I'm not at fault. And what drives me nuts about the whole the, the rehab thing is bad enough. The halfway houses are bad enough. The ones that are like my pet peeve are the ones that put the Christian labels on them, and they they do this same exact thing as the secular ones. But they say, well, we're a Christian rehab or we're a Christian halfway house. But you go in there, they're doing the 12 steps. Everybody's part of AA. They're totally bought into the disease concept. That That's when I, it just makes my blood boil because it's such, it's so contrary to the Christian gospel and to the Christian faith. And those places are all over. It's nuts. Yeah, I agree with you, brother. I mean, it's, it's pretty... Yeah, I remember when I was in uh, one of the rehab places, I remember a new girl came in and she walked in and she's, they were like, they said to her, they go, yeah, you're going to have to go to these meetings to, you know, to stay sober, um, these AA or NA meetings. And she's like, A is a cult. And she said this in front of the whole class at the time. And then everyone's laughing. They're like, ha 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 ha. Oh, come on. No, it's not. Oh, she's the crazy one. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> But man, it's yeah, it's, it's wild. And um, so let me think. So I was okay. So I was back at the warehouse working, and you know, I had I had gotten a girlfriend. I thought I was in love coming out of all that. I was like, I'm sober. I'm in love, and blah blah blah. You know, just hooking up with her, doing you know, fornicating with her, and and all that, and. And just still just so empty inside, you know, just far, further and further, you know, deeper and deeper, just getting darker, you know, darker and darker in my life and, and getting more away from God um, in my sin. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was I started dealing um, underground like poker games. I was making a lot of money. I was, you know after I broke I ended up breaking up with that girlfriend I ended up uh, the warehouse I was working at I I was so mad and angry at the time I, I went in one day like I just hated what I was doing and, and I went in one day and I looked at I looked at someone and I was like I put in like my hands together and it was like boom like a bomb was gonna go off and like joking around and that was not a joke they took that very seriously and someone reported it and i ended up getting fired from that warehouse job because of it wow yeah i mean i was 
I was just so messed up, man. And so when I left that, I, that's when I started dealing the underground poker games. I started gambling on. I was making good money, you know. Sometimes I make a thousand, fifteen hundred a night just in cash dealing, and then I go and I win some more at the boat or at the casino. And um, yeah, that was pretty much that was pretty much what was going on. And I, at that point, I started taking Vicodin pretty much every day. I would take somewhere between like 10 or 15 pills a day. I just started taking opiates again. I didn't want to go on the hard stuff. Vicodin was a little less than the other stuff. So I thought Mm -hmm. that I justified that in my mind. And so it got to the point where, um, let's see, I was living in my grand, my grandpa, we had put my grandpa in a home. Uh, my aunt said I could stay in there before they sell the house. So I was staying there. I was smoking weed, gambling, dealing cards, and taking Vicodin. And pretty much just close close to my bottom there. Uh, just hopeless and just so much depression and fits of anger and rage and some suicide and stuff like that. And so... I ended up leaving my granddad's house. I went back to my parents' house. It's just this back and forth between me and my parents. You know, they, they, they enabled me. They loved me, but they enabled me to, to keep doing what I was doing. And they would always help me out and things like that. But so it was right around this time. And this was almost six years ago now. And it'll be six years in July or six years this month in February. My friend, um, Prashant, he was a friend of mine from school I grew up with, and he was Hindu. And and I had actually prayed for him for my whole life. Um, I prayed for him that he would become a believer and he would become a Christian and and everything. And, and he started reaching out to me, and he started sending me Bible verses, and uh, he took me to like a um, some some Christian movie. I forgot. We went to see a Christian movie and. He was just talking to me and, and stuff, and, and I was still, and this was right at the tail end of my drug addiction. I was on Suboxone. I couldn't get off Suboxone. I was smoking wax, which is like 90% THC, and um, and I was doing that every day. And So he was reaching out to me, and so what happened was, um, you know, there was no one left really in my life that was around me. He was probably the last one left, and... The guy I was getting my Suboxone from, who was also a heroin, a recovering heroin addict, he ended up trying to kill himself, and he tried to hang himself. He broke both his wrists trying to save his life after he tried hanging himself, and so I couldn't get drugs from him. The other guy I was getting drugs from was in detox, so I was like, you know what? This is it, so I quit. I quit cold turkey off the Suboxone, and I actually went to the emergency room. After about two or three days, the withdrawals got so bad. Of all the withdrawals I did, Suboxone was probably the worst. Um, hmm. After two or three days, physically, I felt just terrible. I went to the emergency room. I, I, I went to them, and I know that anytime you're trying to get a painkiller from the emergency room, you don't want to say there's pain in your stomach, because they won't give you that if you go there. And... I went there and I was like, oh, I have pain in my stomach. And it was weird that I said that. And I think it was God um, that I said that to the emergency room doctor, who I also think was a Christian, because um, he looked at me really strange. And he's like, I'm not giving you this. You don't need this anymore. And, you're, and 
And so they just said, you know, take an aspirin or whatever, you know, go home. So I went home and, and I just withdrew for another couple of days. I, I was suicidal. I was super depressed. I was fighting the urge to, to do anything, to try to get drugs anywhere else. I, you know, just wanted to kill myself. And after those days, after those thoughts and, and the days went on and that stuff passed, uh, the physical symptoms started to subside for the next week. And I wasn't doing anything. I was just doing a lot. Of, I was taking a lot of herbal supplements, a lot of natural stuff to, to help me sleep and get through the day and, and things like that. And, and I called that friend up and I called my friend Prashan up and I said, man, you know, this is it. Like, I need to pray. And I was like, I need to ask for forgiveness. I was like, my life is a mess. And, and this is not what ha God has for me. Because he would always tell me when I call him and be angry and on drugs that at the end of every phone conversation, he'd be like, God has more for me than this. God has more. I don't even remember saying this, but apparently I would say this at the end of every phone call. Hmm. And so I called him and I was like, you know what? This is it. I'm done. Like, let's pray. And I just... The prayer was like five minutes long, but for me it felt like two hours. And I prayed, and I asked for forgiveness. And as soon as I said "Amen," it was like a switch. It was like God, you know, in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, God says He'll give you a new heart. Mm -hmm. You know, that was what He did for me. He He replaced my heart. Everything like. I had joy and peace for the first time in years and I looked around and it was like I woke up out of a coma and, and I had been washed clean of all my sin. All my sin had been removed. I had been forgiven by the blood of Christ and I had the Holy Spirit in me for the first time in my life in that moment. And that was my conversion and that was it. Wow. And he healed me of drugs. He healed me of addiction. I was no longer like that anymore, and I walked into a church for the first time on Sunday in like years, and, and that was it. It was just, a, it was like in an instant that everything changed. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. Now, how long ago was this? This was, uh, it'll be six years in July. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so I've been a believer for six years. Wow. So you... You went through a miraculous, I, don't, I hate using that word deliverance because it's so abused nowadays, yeah, but the Lord, true, yeah. the Lord set you free from everything that you had been trapped in because of sin. Now, what has he done? You know, what, what's it been like since then? It's been amazing. I mean, one thing though is, you know, once that happened, you're not going to have your best life now. You're not, everything's not going to be great. You will have joy and peace for the first time, but you know, there's being a Christian has never been walking my life as a Christian has never it has been way more difficult than when when I was an unbeliever. Mm -hmm. You know, you come against so much opposition, spiritual warfare, all these things that come against you, um, but it's refining you, it's making you holy. You know, in the eyes of God, it, it's it's growing you in holiness, it's sanctifying you. Um, it's something us as Christians have to go through in order to get us to where we need to be in God's eyes. Um, exactly. Now, when this happened, did you understand that you needed 
there's a worldly repentance and there's a, a repentance unto salvation. Did you realize when you prayed that prayer that, that you were, did you have conviction of your sin? You needed the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You needed to be washed clean in his blood um, in order to be freed from what was, what you were trapped in. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Okay. Because I grew up in the church, you know, the pseudo church or whatever. So I knew, I knew what Christ had done for sinners. You know, I knew what God had done by sending his son, Jesus Christ to die on the cross. So we may have forgiveness. Yes. You know, I, I, those things are in the back of my mind. So yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that, that was it, you know, and, and it, in earlier testimonies, I've been like, you know, he had washed me clean of eight years, but no, he had washed me clean my whole life. You know, I I was born in sin, mm-hmm. um, and and everything before that, you know, it's gone. It's forgiven by Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So yeah, so yeah, and that that's what happened, and I mean, and then after that, you know, I I'd say maybe a little bit probably like a couple a month or a couple months after that I fell into a sin with a woman um she was the devil had her prepared already after I became a Christian and she came in and and I fell I fell into sin with her and I was super convicted you know I I felt so bad about what I had done I called that friend again and I prayed and I asked for forgiveness um and there were a couple other times where there were a couple carnal sins here and there. But, you know, that was the one thing that's the difference between unbelievers and believers. When I was an unbeliever, I never really felt bad about any of that thing, any of those things. Um, there was nothing in me, really, that made me feel bad. But once I became a Christian, that was when I had the conviction of sin. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew uh, when I did something wrong against God, you know, that it, it tore me up. It made me feel so bad. You know, to have this sin in front of a holy God. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Praise the Lord, man. I love these stories because it's, it's so important that we hear these things nowadays because you just, and I'm sure you know this, um, there's so much corruption in the modern church, you know, in the modern, the, the consensus among so many Christian leaders is, you know, maybe 10% of the people claiming to be Christian actually are Christian or actually saved. And Very true. Yeah, the Christian church looks so much to worldly solutions, to worldly answers. And it's so sad because we have everything we need in God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We have the authority and the sufficiency of God's word in scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And it's just so sad that stories like yours are not being told every day. Um because it's 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 so beautiful and it's such a blessing um and 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 what you went through should not be uh rare you know what i'm saying it should be something that that so many people have experienced and are blessed with instead of being trapped in the suffering and the pain and the sin that they're trapped in trying all these different ways of getting out of it and getting through it yeah. yeah, and I know I completely agree with you. And I think the one thing I tell people now is that we I wish I wish we were more transparent, you know, not just as Christians, but as human beings, you know. You don't know, you know, I drive I, I 
run this ministry vessels for Christ now, but I, you know, I have to work and pay my bills. So I also drive Uber and Lyft. Mm-hmm. When I'm driving Uber and Lyft, you know, I share this story. I share this testimony. I share about Christ with a lot of different people. And, you know, you don't know what someone's going through in that moment. You don't know how many times I've picked up people who had six Doxycontin in their pocket. And we're like, man, I'm trapped. How'd you get out of it? You know, and I share about Jesus Christ and what he's done for me and what he can do for them. Yeah. Because um, this happens, you know, yeah, this happens a lot. And it's like, you just don't know who, who you might be talking to and sharing Christ with who was going to commit suicide that night or something. Yeah. And our society is so based on image and facade that, like you said, no one's transparent, even Christians. And that's a tool of Satan. You know, everybody is obsessed with putting on a front, appearing to be a certain way that's pleasing to the world. But as Christians, I I think it's our duty that the Lord gives us eyes to peel that away and strive to see the condition that people are really in. And that will mean we're either going to learn from them and they're going to be a blessing to us in our walk with Christ because of their walk with Christ. Or we're going to see that, like you said, they've got drugs in their pocket, even though you know, the pocket might be the pocket of a $3,000 Armani suit. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're still totally uh, dying in their sin. And they're just, uh, they have no idea how to get that out so that they can be helped with it. Hopefully that makes sense, what I just said. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. And, and yeah, and you touched on a good point. You know, when, when I was an unbeliever, I remember the pride that you have in your life, you know, uh, the everything's got to be good on the outside you got to look good you don't want it, it's like a, a weakness thing you don't want to appear weak to someone by sharing what you've gone through that might make yourself look worse mm-hmm. um, and and that's like the total opposite of what God's called us to do you know he wants us to share these testimonies he wants us to encourage people he he, he, he the testimony in my life is for God's glory. You know, it's not in vain. I, I don't take it for granted. I thank the Lord for everything I've gone through up to this point in my life. Amen. Because for his glory, it's to show people his saving grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Yep. Yep. Praise the Lord. So tell me a little bit about Vessels for Christ before we wrap this up. Yeah. So um, after I got um, converted, after I became a believer... God put it on my heart to do missions, to start doing ministry overseas. But it took about two years till he worked on my life, a lot of other deep-rooted sins in my life that he wanted to work on and, and go through and um, that I had to give to him uh, throughout those, that period of time. And so after about two years, I ended up, through a series of events, I went to Belize and I actually went down there to volunteer at a children's home uh, with a friend of mine. It was the first time I had been in a third world country, the first time I'd been overseas. And I just, like I'm doing here, I share my testimony with them, I share the gospel with them, uh, I share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And a couple months later, I actually went back and um, I met my wife there. She, she's from here, she's from North Carolina originally, but we met down there, uh, we fell in love, we got married, and um, God put it on my heart to to go to some of these other countries and and work with churches in not just in Belize but in Myanmar and in India. Uh, we have partners we work with um, 
we basically financially support them from over here and then I travel over there, see what's going on and, and just helping and equipping them in, in anything we can. Mm -hmm. um, just to spread the gospel, uh, mostly we mostly in unreached areas, people that have maybe not heard about Jesus Christ or have limited knowledge of Him, um, and we work with these partners we have, these pastors and um, these missionaries and evangelists to go out there and, and share the gospel with them. So um, we have two orphanages and two churches in Myanmar we work with. We have one church in India. And we have a, um, a couple kids we've been sponsoring in Belize and a church uh, we're probably going to start working with in Belize. And we're looking to maybe plant a church in Latvia in the next couple of years in Eastern Europe. Awesome. Praise the Lord. I love that kind of stuff. That's what we do in Kenya. Um, awesome. What's the website? Vesselsforchrist.org? Yeah, vesselsforchrist.org is the website. You can see all the information there. And then uh, you can sign up for our newsletter if you'd like and i send updates about what's going on yeah i'll definitely do that that's awesome yeah i'm heading out to kenya next wednesday oh man for another that's trip. I, I love it's it's i only like being in the u.s for a short period of time i love being overseas i love meeting with people over there uh, new believers and believers alike it's it's just such a great time when you're over there it's just so different from yeah, there's such a passion for the word in some of these countries that we've got such an apathetic um, viewpoint in so much of Christianity. I think it's very refreshing, you know, to go to some of these places and see their passion. And, and it's so needed now because um, now how, how did you come to know me? I know you know me through Facebook. Who do we have in common? Like, who do you know that I know? your podcast and I think that's when I reached out but I know you know I've, I've met Andrew Rappaport a couple times you know him right that was it okay yeah you know Andrew okay and then you came across the podcast you cut out there for a second when you were explaining that sorry um okay so so you're you're solid biblically so <laughs> if if you know Andrew and these other guys but what I wanted to say was it's such an important time for us to be edifying and strengthening the body of Christ around the world because of the false teachings that are being exported from America. And I'm sure you've seen that. And it just blows me away. Um, you know, I've lived in five countries and most of them was, I was, you know, working in the secular uh, world. But no, the point I was making is, is there's so much uh, apostasy with, with the NAR movement and all this other stuff around the world. I love what you're doing. Because um, we need to not just go reach the unreached with the gospel, but what we've got to realize, and I, and I hope I think you probably agree with this, with the modern church is so much that appears to be the modern church uh, is void of the gospel, and yeah. you know so many countries that 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 you'll look at, you know, like on the the uh, CIA Factbook database, it'll say it's you know sixty percent Christian, but then when you look at the denominations or the influence religiously in that country, it's mostly Roman Catholic or Mormon or whatever it is, and you realize, you know, there's so much work to be done. So, you know, I really, I love what you're doing, and I just pray that the Lord blesses it as you go forward. Oh, I appreciate it, brother. Yeah, the um, the prosperity gospel is so rampant in Southeast Asia and in Southern India, and in India, 
what me and my wife saw when we were there last year was just the Hinduism mixed with the Christianity and they call themselves Christians and statistics and stuff like that but it's not Christian at all it's not biblical at all it was just a mesh together of two religions where they say Jesus is one of our gods type of thing but there's no repentance there's no he's the one God he's the or he's the true God Jesus and God are the same there, there's none of those basic um, doctrinal salvation uh, terms it's it's all kind of mixed together so that's exactly what we're trying to fight against because it's, it, like you said it's just it's just so rampant now it's like everywhere yeah yeah I know it's uh, next, you know, the next few weeks when I'm in Kenya, that's what we'll be working on a lot with all the pastors that we have there now is um, doctrine, you know, the authority and sufficiency of scripture, making a stand um, against all odds, you know, as this prosperity, NAR, Bethel influence just creeps around the world. It's it's nuts. For sure, brother. And um, I'll have to come back on and share. I, I didn't even get into it, but I'll have to share my experience with being in the charismatic stuff for the first year of my uh, my Christian life, uh, th some of the things I saw and the things that I heard um, and everything, I, th I think it'll be encouraging to people listening. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I'm going to make a note of that. When I get back um, the end of March, I'd love to have you on and talk about that. Yeah, yeah it would, I think it would be good. Uh, it's it, I love just how God draws you out I, I thank him for that. And then he draws you just to his word. And when you start reading his word and reading about um, true saving faith and, and saving grace and, and just and start learning so much about church history and, and the Trinity and these, these different – you see how much of that is just so self-centered, self-indulgent, and just – it's just – and mysticism and new age-ish and, and all of that you just start to see how yeah. much of that and and it's like friends of mine are still caught up into it so it's like anytime i can come on and share and compare that stuff to what scripture really says you know yeah let's plan on that i'll call you when i get back and we'll schedule it uh for yeah, sure good, all right buddy well thank you so much for coming on i've loved this it's been very inspiring um and i look on i look forward to having you on again again uh, this is Alex Wright, and his website for his ministry is vesselsforchrist.org. Give it a look, lift him up in prayer, and help him if you have the ability to do so. Thanks again, Alex. Thanks, Pastor Chad. I appreciate it. All right. God bless. God bless. Thank you for listening to The Way Radio. You can find us on the web at thewayradio.net. And as I mentioned, I am leaving for another trip to Kenya uh, in just a couple days on March 4th. I'll be there for a few weeks working with our pastors there and serving uh, the churches. So if you could just uh, keep me in prayer on this trip and if you would like to support the work we're doing there, we're trying to expand some of our churches there that have grown substantially. Uh, we're trying to, um, so we need chairs there. We're trying to provide Bibles, which is always a pressing need. Uh, so there's just much work to do. We have orphans we take care of who need clothes, shoes, food, uh, just a lot of pressing issues that we always are faced with. So if you'd like to help us with that, you can go to our website at The Way, 
the letter r122.org, and there's a donate button on there. You can also check out the Kenya page and read all about our ministry there. Uh, So thank you for listening, and until next time, this is Pastor Chad Prigmore. God bless.